And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Paul Kangor. He's an author and professor of political science at Grove City College. He's also executive director of the Center for Vision and Values, a Grove City College think tank policy center, and also a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution, and Peace at Stanford University. Dr. Kenger, welcome to our program. It's good to be with you, Dan. Thank you. You know, the other day I saw an article that came across in my morning email. It comes from, I think it's called The Daily Signal. And you had written an article which kind of flowed from your latest book where you talk about Margaret Sanger. And the title of the book is very interesting to me at least. It's called Takedown from Communists to Progressives, How the Left Has Sabotaged Family and Marriage. And the last part of that title is very uh, revealing. I just want to say this. I don't want to take excessive heat for this interview today because right. and let people know that, you know what, we really do believe that Jesus is Lord here at the broadcast ministry. Uh, we don't see our faith as ending on a Sunday morning after church, after the worship service, then we're non-Christians the whole week, and then just come back and make believe we're Christians again in the pew on Sunday. And I'm reminded of a, of a quote from Abraham Kuyper years ago, where he, he said, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. So I just want listeners to know it's not our intent to stir up controversy, but when there's something that's attacking the very heart of our homes and marriages, it really becomes necessary to talk about it and try to persuade people of the claims of Christ over every area of life. So Dr. Kangar, with those those words, um, I would really appreciate it if you could help us understand what you're talking about in this book, and in particular, uh, a concern for our family and marriage. Sure. Well, you know, Dan, evil never sleeps, right? The, the devil never sleeps. Satan never sleeps. And, you know, really you could begin this whole battle to separate male-female marriage, male-female bond, all the way back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. You know, whether you believe that's um, literal or, or symbolic, you know, either way, there, there you have evil, the evil one, if you will, um, trying from the very beginning to tear asunder and separate the, the, the human model that, that God had ordained. And so I, I begin this book, Take Down, not with the Garden of Eden, although I do say that in the, in the beginning, but I pretty much start the, you know, the tangible, absolute, historical, you know, indisputable, chronological timeline in the 1800s. And, and I start off specifically with Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in the Communist Manifesto. I, I teach history, I teach political science, and I also lecture around the country. And people again and again, I'll run into young people who say, well, the Communist Manifesto is a pretty good book if you just read it. It talks about sharing and love and, and equal wealth redistribution. And, and I know right away, Dan, when I hear that, that they haven't actually read it, <laughs> right? <laughs> because it's, it, it, and, and that's too bad because it's a short book, and it's a very disturbing book. They, they say, 
the entire communist philosophy may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. And, and you know right then and there, in fact, Marx and Engels say that it's going to require despotism to be able to do that. Right. Because, because private property, I mean, you know, property is a sacred right. Uh, you know, Thou shalt not steal. You know, that alone assumes that people have the right to property. But there's another phrase in the book, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels write of, of the abolition of the family. And they even put an exclamation mark after it. And they say right then and there in 1848, they call it an infamous proposal of a communist. So one, it's already a proposal of a communist, and two, it's already infamous. And, and, and I, I take readers back even further to the 1820s in the United States. Robert Owen and his new Harmony Colony in, in Indiana, 1826, July 4th, 1826, where this was a socialist atheist utopian. He stood up and he declared war against what he called the, the most monstrous evils, the unholy trinity of, of God, property, and the family. And, and I walked through different ideological colonies in the United States in the 1800s. There were dozens of these, 40, 50, 60s, 40, 50, 60, from the New Harmony Colony in Indiana to Oneida in New York, where they were trying all sorts of new arrangements and configurations for family and marriage. And what, what all of these hold in common, and this is getting a little ahead of the narrative, I know we'll eventually get to this point, but what all of those folks in the 1800s through the 1920s in Russia, the 1960s in America, and even to the same-sex marriage movement today, is even if they're not all ideologically on the same plane, even if they're not all hardened Marxists or, or you know, cultural communists, what they all hold in common is they, they all think that, that there is no single set, natural, traditional, biblical model for marriage and family, and, and that they all think that they can arrogate unto themselves the right to redefine and, and come up with their own conceptions of, of marriage and family. So that's a battle that's been going on for hundreds of years and that I greatly regret to say only now in America in 2015 is it finally coming to fruition. And, 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 and it's particularly through same-sex marriage that, um, that these older, more sinister forces, and the modern same-sex marriage advocates don't even know this, but that these older, more sinister forces have finally, finally, finally succeeded in being able to, to redefine and reshape that natural, traditional, biblical model for family and marriage. That's very uh, helpful, very enlightening. Very disturbing. Absolutely. And uh, I, we went through it, you know, I'm probably a little older than you. I remember growing up in, in the 60s, and um, there was a real heightened concern about communism. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, people were concerned. Uh, it was when Russia was building up warfare just south of us in in Cuba. Um, there was a real there was a real scare, a real concern, and and you know that that concern kind of went away. And you know, America becomes strong. We got smart bombs and all of that. And and it's like it's no longer on the radar screen. But this this concept of communism. I'm convinced, and, and Marxism uh, has 
like a camel getting his nose under the tent, has got into our public schools. Right. So that Marxism uh, is taught without using the word. That's right. And, and look, you know, we, we defeated economic-based Marxism, class-based Marxism, you know, foreign policy-based Marxism, the common term, the Soviet Union. But what we did not defeat, there is a very shrewd, and I walked through this very carefully in, in the book in Takedown, there was this very careful, shrewd, orchestrated attempt beginning in the 1920s, a group of cultural Marxists, they called themselves, George Lukash, Wilhelm Reich, Herbert Marcuse, and they said these, these guys were very Machiavellian, and, and you know, they even used words like demonic to describe what, what they wanted to do. They, they said we're not going to be able to take down the West through a traditional economic class-based model because capitalism will always defeat Marxism at, at, at that level. So they sought to take down the West through culture, and specifically through what Ralph de Toledano called an unrestrained miasma of sex. So for them it would be sex, gender, marriage, family. And, and these cultural Marxists, specifically in the Frankfurt School in Germany in the 1930s, they, they fused, they created this form of Freudian Marxism. I know this sounds crazy, and it was, but it, it, it's what they did. And, and, and they, thought, they sought to instill this through the university system, through media, Hollywood, through, through what, what Lenin called the conveyor belt of, of, of mass culture. They were very, very, very patient. They had much more of an evolutionary rather than revolutionary model. And, and they said the key is culture, 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 through education, 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 sex, sex, sex. And, and they argued for non-monogamous marriage, for premarital and extramarital sex, for sex with, um, with, with, within the same gender, for muddying and blurring uh, sexual identity, gender roles, all of that stuff. And, and these were the people, they eventually came to the United States because most of them were, were Jewish Marxists. So they, they had to flee Germany in the 1930s because of Hitler's madness. And of all places, <laughs> they were invited and, and eagerly invited by, by Professor John Dewey in Columbia University. So they, they set up shop in Columbia. And John Dewey, John Dewey said, oh, they could do magnificent work with my Columbia Teachers College, and with my favorite organization, the National Education Association. Dewey, Dewey is Honorary President for Life for the NEA. And so it was there in the colleges that they set up camp, and the 1960s radicals, the new left, as they were called, Mark Rudd, Bernardine Dorn, Bill Ayers, Tom Hayden, Jane Fonda, Weather Underground, SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, the cultural Marxist of the Frankfurt School, like Herbert Marcuse, he, he was their guru. Wilhelm Reich, who wrote the book, The Sexual Revolution, he was one of the people that they read. So Kate Millett in the 1960s, who wrote Sexual Politics, Betty Friedan, they read all of these people. Ideas have consequences. Betty Friedan read read um, uh, Marx and Engels' 1884 book on the origins of the family, where where Ingalls is pushing for non-monogamous marriage. Uh, the 60s crew picked up this whole smashing monogamy idea from the communists. 
So, so these ideas, which, which began, which were planted in the 19th century, 1920s, 1930s, began to germinate in the 60s, and then eventually flowered, if you will, their bitter fruits in, uh, in the universities of the 1990s and, and into the 21st century today. You know, you're reminding me of something. Uh, today on the phone line with us is Dr. Paul Kangor of Grove City College. Uh, Dr. Kangor, you're reminding me of when I was getting close to graduating from high school, which now is a long time ago, back in the early 70s, um, during the, you know, several years prior to graduation. Now and then I would come across a teacher, and he and I wouldn't get along too well, and I, I didn't have any um, education to get my arms around this stuff. But what you're describing here about these cultural Marxists, I'm now convinced that some of the teachers were completely uh, in that line of thought way back then. Oh, yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And, and anybody who's come out of the universities, especially the last 10 or 20 years, I, I mean, look, if you want to know where the same-sex marriage movement really came from, where it started to pick up steam, it was totally in the universities. And, and then those university graduates who today are in what the cultural Marxists would call the conveyor belt. They're in Hollywood, they're writing sitcoms, they're doing TV shows, they're running Google and Facebook and search engines, and the, you know, the, the Yahoo news alerts that you get every day that are loaded with quote-unquote LGBT stuff and so forth. That is all produced by 20 or 30-somethings, millennials, who, who've come out of the universities over the last 10 or 20 years. So it was. It, they, the cultural Marxists were very shrewd. They, they realized they, they weren't going to defeat the United States and the West through economics, but but if you just get a hold of education, they realized that young people, especially in an increasingly secular culture that no longer has certain moral and biblical absolutes, where relativism, the dictatorship of relativism, is is, is the reigning zeitgeist. They knew that these young people would be supple prey. They, they, they would be very easy to get. And it's fascinating and really, really depressing and shocking for me, Dan, today, to watch at how easily swayed people in the popular culture are. I, I mean, they will, what one friend of the family, uh, now Facebook, does various Facebook posts, and my wife tells me about her sometimes, and she's convinced that she's transgender. And, 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 and she's the first of about a half a dozen young people I've run into on that in the last year or two. Look, one, one to two out of a hundred people are homosexual or bisexual. So you're going to run into those people in, in, in your lifetime. I've known those people. Um, but you're not going to run into very many people who are transgender, okay? <laughs> if you start, suddenly start running into people who want to be another gender, th th that's the result of, of the larger culture convincing very young people um, of something that they're really not. Yeah. Be because because even, even most homosexual people who want to have sexual relations with people of the same gender don't don't actually want sex change operations, right? They, 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 you know, they, they don't want to become another gender. 
that's a very, very, very rare thing. You can go a whole lifetime with never meeting somebody like that. But it just shows how with the young people today in this modern, secular, post-Christian America of ours, this fundamentally transformed culture, as our president calls it, they are supple prey. They can be very easily manipulated. And the cultural Marxists, they very shrewdly saw this 100 years ago. You know, you're reminding me also how important it is to have a college like Grove City College. I've never visited it, but we have talked with one of your colleagues, Dr. Sean Rittenauer, oh, yeah. uh, about economics, and now we're talking today with you, Paul Kengor. Uh, you're a professor there of political science. I never went to a Christian college, and I think, wow, do these kids have a treat in store for them to reorder their thinking after a godly model and after reality on the ground, you know, natural law, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, a, what a great opportunity it is for kids. What if we have someone listening today and they want to check out your school? How would they go about doing that? Yeah, well, just Google Grove City College. You could go straight to our website or really my Center for Vision and Values. I'm the executive director of that at Grove City College. And our website is visionandvalues.org, so visionandvalues.org. But, but yeah, I mean, look, our, our students are simply learning what students have always learned, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, that, so there's really, we're not doing anything new. It's everybody else that's doing everything completely revolutionary, so new that it has no grounding at all. I mean, we teach not only biblical law, but natural law. And, and you know, I, in fact, I had one of my students, Dan, recently, who's now at a, at a law school, a major university law school, which means it's a major secular law school, and they went almost the whole semester without a discussion of natural law. And, and my student went up to her professor at the end of class and very kindly, gently, politely, because she didn't want to embarrass the professor, she said to her, hey, you know, we never once even brought up natural law. And the professor said, well, that's because natural law doesn't exist. Mm. And, and, <laughs> and my student said, okay, well, look, even if you think it doesn't exist, basically every single one of the founding fathers believed in it. <laughs> Our Constitution was based on it. The Declaration was based on it. Jefferson had this phrase in the Declaration, the laws of nature and nature is God. Shouldn't we at least know what it is? But the answer to that from the professor, and she didn't put it this way, but you know, the answer in her heart was, no, you shouldn't know what it is because I don't want you to know what it is. I, I don't want this culture to know what it is because that kind of thing, that truth, gets in the way of the fundamental transformation uh, that, that they're trying to pull off in the culture and the country. Mm, yeah, good point. I sometimes kid my friends, I talk to them about, I said, you know, I pick up the news, and I'm not a fan of, of most news outlets. One I, I watch a little more than the others has a mantra, fair and balanced. I said, even I don't even like that mantra, because what I want is the truth. Right. You, you know, if you get this thing of fair and balanced, you're going to mix in all views, and you don't know which one is true and which one isn't. That's not right. good either. Yeah, it's as if all views are equal, right? But, yeah. I, I, but I can say to you that as a product of, of secular education myself, that if I had had professors who merely presented both sides, then, then people can discern the truth, right? It, it, I think, I think it's, it's God's doing 
that when something doesn't feel quite right, you can smell it, right? <laughs> yeah. and, 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 then, and then when when the truth is actually laid out there, the, the bells go off. You're like, that's it. I, I you just sort of implicitly know when you hear the truth that you know, that that's it. And and w- what I found with secular liberal education is that they simply don't provide both sides. Right. I often found myself sitting in classrooms, practically jumping out of my seat, wanting to yell at the professor, but what about this, <laughs> right? You're not mentioning this. It, sometimes I do when I read the New York Times. You know, if just that one this was included, it would change everything in the presentation. Oh, yeah, no question about it. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, today we're talking with uh, Dr. Paul Kangor. He's written the book, Takedown, from Communists to Progressives, How the Left Has Sabotaged Family and Marriage. And uh, Dr. Kangor, we have maybe a couple of minutes left yet. Do you think uh, that a progressive intentionally sabotages the family and marriage, or it's just a natural fallout of these Marxist beliefs? Yeah, most of them do not realize truly what they're doing. And what I say very carefully here is that there, there, are, there are people who are wittingly trying to completely redefine family and marriage in order to take it down. That's a small percentage, but, but those people are out there, and I quote some of them in the book. But, but what the vast majority of same-sex marriage supporters, they're doing for this for what they believe are benevolent reasons or kind reasons. They are unwitting accomplices to what these more sinister forces are doing. And what I'm trying to say in this book, kindly, gently, is to make these forces aware of, of the much larger, older, more sinister movement that they're aiding and abetting. They don't realize that they're doing it. But, but you, you, if, if you don't realize what's going on, you're doing a great disservice to yourself, to, to truth, to culture, and to the country. Yeah, good point. Um, suppose someone wants to get a hold of one of your books. How would they go about doing that? Well, just go to Amazon.com and type in my name, Paul Kengor, K-E-N-G-O-R. And if you type in Paul Kengor Takedown, that'll take you to the to the book we're talking about here today. Mm. Sometimes I wonder, how did a guy ever get uh, interested in this sort of thing? What's your background? What What sort of things have you studied in the past that led to writing this book? Well, that, and that's the key issue, really. It, the people have said, friends of mine in the culture wars, uh, look, why do you want to get involved in this? You're going to get a ton of hate mail from gay rights people, and I have. I, I'm getting really vicious email. But for me, it's because of my background in communism, the Cold War, ideologies. I'd written a bunch of Cold War books, a number of biographies of Ronald Reagan. Uh, God and Ronald Reagan was a, a popular book that I wrote. And so, but it's my background. Every semester, Dan, when I teach the Communist Manifesto, and we come across that line on the abolition of the family, you know, I, I walk my students through this older history. And if you go today and you look at websites like People's World, the successor to the Daily Worker, the mouthpiece of Communist Party USA, if you go to the cpusa.org website, I do this every day because it's my area, you'll see that today's communists, are absolutely on fire for same-sex marriage, for the whole LGBT agenda, and they are blistering, in particular, Christians and religious people who won't be pulled along to, to, to that agenda. 
So for me, working in that area, I saw all of this unfolding, and I thought uh, somebody needs to write a book on this history from the 1800s to 2015. And so I was the uh, the sucker here <laughs> who, <laughs> who stuck my neck out, and now I'm getting whacked pretty pretty good for it. Yeah, it's interesting when you take a stance um, how much vitriol can come your way um, when you take a righteous stance. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's unbelievable. And from people who fancy themselves as tolerant, I, I mean, if you want to see intolerance, you should read my email box <laughs> from the forces of tolerance who refuse to tolerate the opinion of someone who disagrees with them. And even my opinion is simply the one on male-female marriage that's been held by literally 99.99 plus percent of humanity for 2,000 years. Yeah, that's and, true. And, and, I'm, and I'm portrayed as the intolerant extremist, as, as if I'm some sort of historical outlier. <laughs> uh, they, but they, they are really, they, they preach diversity and tolerance, but they are incredibly vicious and intolerant to anybody who disagrees with their fundamental transformation. Mm, good point. Well, Dr. Kangor, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, dear listener, uh, Dr. Kangor is an author and professor of political science at Grove City College. Perhaps one of your young people may want to consider that as a college to attend. He is the executive director of the Center for Vision and Values, a Grove City College think tank policy center. And Dr. Kangor, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, sure thing, Dan. God bless. And dear listener, if you'd like to listen to this broadcast again, it's up on our website. Check us out. We're at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. And please join us again next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. Some trust in the work they do. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. By His grace all the work is through. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Sing, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. His love never fails. His name will always prevail. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in the wealth of things. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. A name worth more than anything. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Sing, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. His love never fails. His name will always prevail. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord.